Hey, this is Dennis Dykin. And this is Jim Babjack from the Smithereens. And you are tuned to What Difference Does It Make? Holly. Hello, Dave. What is happening with yourself today <laughs> on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? You see me consulting my list of adjectives so I can tell you how stellar today's episode is going to be, how stellar our guests are, how exceptional and high grade our guests are this week. No, they're high grade. They're not a motor oil. Okay, so okay, you're right. So they are. Stellar is great. So just use stellar. Okay, fine. Our guest this week. Stellar. Yeah, who is it? Who we got today in the virtual studios? Today we have Dennis Dyken and Jim Babjack of the Smithereens. We saw the Smithereens uh, a month ago and knocked me out. I was thrilled at uh, how exceptional they are and how they elevate the music still. They're really, really great. To, not just nostalgic. They are really great to see. And by the way, we saw them, the singer, since Pat Denizia's death, they work with a few different singers. And we saw Marshall Crenshaw. And... He was great. And the Canyon Club was a fun environment. The Smithereens have a lost album, which is bonkers. Like a full-fledged album that was put together back in the 90s. Like the early 90s, during their heyday. Prime Smithereens, lost for the ages. And now dug up like Indiana Jones and found. And now polished up. This album is seriously a gem. And I'm so glad they're releasing it. We're going to get into that, but before we do, Holly, Jim took us through his house, just showing some of his artifacts and fun souvenirs that he's collected throughout the years. How would one see that? One will be able to see them on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make podcast. And you will also see little clips at WDDIM podcast on all other social media. So check it out. Fun stuff. All right. So let's get into it. We're going to talk the lost album with the smithereens right here on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hi. Uh, Hi. Jimmy. Thanks sure for doing this. Yep. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you hey. so, so very much. Last we saw you, were, we were playing at the Canyon Club, and the show was great. It's really nice. I like um, that you guys kind of touch on the, the whole history of the Smithereens during your show. Is that, uh, is that a typical show for the Smithereens? Just kind of like, here's how we got to where we are right now. I'd, I'd say so. I mean, 42 years. <laughs> Yeah. You believe that? It's 42 years. There's a lot of material. And our fans have supported us all that time, and they want to hear a smattering of our music across the uh, the years. So that's pretty much we, what we do. Well, we, uh, you know, when Robin Wilson also sings with us sometimes from the Gin Blossoms, he's the lead singer of the Gin Blossoms, and um, we let Marshall and uh, Robin decide what the deep cuts are going to be. that they want to play because obviously we have to play the the more popular ones and the hit songs but we let them choose their own favorites like um i don't know if you know our albums but uh robin for instance likes to do groovy tuesday from the first album Mm -hmm. and then marshall will want to do uh she's got away by the way we are fans from day one so 42 years yeah. We've been fans from day one. So. I, well, yeah, I've, I remember seeing you at the Roxy. I, I'm sure I think it was like 87 or something. It was the especially for you tour. That's college radio. That's it was we were playing that. It was it was great. Those were good times. Four or five nights at the Roxy in a row. And I loved it because we didn't have to uh, <laughs> go anywhere except the hotel, you know, and then yeah. go see the sights. <laughs> L.A. has always been a special stop for us. Always. And we were signed to a label out of L.A., uh, Enigma Records, before we were with Capital. The audiences have always been real electric in L.A., and it's it's always been a place, obviously, that we love going to for a lot of reasons. And we recorded several albums there as well. So L.A. is our lady. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, but, Frank, bring, but bringing back Frank's a Jersey guy. Place. You have to bring the Jersey into L.A. with the... <laughs> some, some viewers might not know that that's a Frank Sinatra album. might have been one of his very last yeah. LPs, but L.A. is my lady. Have you ever heard that album? I remember he was trying to bring a, make a New York, New York type song, and they, tr- you know, they tried to do it, but, you know, Randy Newman is, uh, is still, he's still number one in our hearts. <laughs> I love L.A. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody has ever lived here. You've spent extended periods of time here while you were recording, but you've no, nobody's, nobody in the band ever lived here. 
We spent um, months when yeah, we were Yeah, four working. months when we recorded the Blow Up album. And those were great four months. My kids were little. You know, my whole family came out for that time. So on our time off, we'd go to the Griffith uh, Observatory, go see movies, we went to the zoo, and um, did all the sights, you know. It was, it was a good time. You didn't bring them back this time? <laughs> They're in their 30s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you can enjoy it in a different way with adults in their 30s. Are they Smithereens <laughs> fans? Well, I guess. I <laughs> okay. They're dad fans. I, I don't push it on them. <laughs> ah, One of the main points we discuss in our podcast is about how we were influenced by our parents with regard to music and how we influence our kids, how we can't force it on them. We just have to hope it seeps in. Well, I'll tell you a story. <laughs> Years ago, my, when my oldest son started driving, so he was 17, and he pulled into the driveway, and I heard um, coming through his, I guess back then he had a CD player. <laughs> I heard Cream, you know, and I said, uh, I thought you listened to, like, hip-hop and, and stuff like that. And they were like, no, no, we, we like the old, uh, we like the rock and roll stuff. And then uh, when my youngest was uh, five, I gave him one of those uh, record players, 45 players with the flip top thing. So I gave him a bunch of 45s to play with. And he's now a scientist, but he's still into vinyl. He'll buy new albums on vinyl. And I have a jukebox in the house. So there's always records playing somewhere. That's great. So, all right. So, Jim, what was your first 45 or what was your first purchase that you made? First purchase? Oh, my God. Uh, out of my own money. Sure. Was, you went to a record store and, and I'm sure you, you know, the record store. So tell us, uh, your yeah, journey I, to, to get this out. How did you hear it? And, and, uh, how'd you get, how'd you afford it? Well, I always loved the Beatles and, uh, but we didn't have a record player and I, I begged for one. And, uh, when I was, I think 14 or 13, I got my first little record player. My mom took me to, um, a store and I bought the Beatles again it's the hey jude album and it was a weird album they had uh, can't buy me love on it i should have known better and then old brown shoe and hey jude of course it, it was basically all the american singles that were never on an album apple put it out as an album and that was my first and then my second one was meet the beatles i wanted to go back and, and see how it all started yeah, that's funny. My my dad had that album, and I remember looking at it. Going, it was like, you know, it looked like Reverend John. They yeah. Were, Can't Buy Me Love was on. I just remember like, so did they, they were this old when they recorded it? It's just, uh, I was trying to get my head around why these songs were look, in that, on this album. They did look old, but they were only 27 at the time. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. photos, it does feel a little better. <laughs> the photos on that album cover were from the last photo session they ever did as a group. Yeah. Dennis, what was your first purchase? And based on what we heard at the Canyon Club, you guys are middle school friends and, you know, I'm sure you bonded over music. Well, Dennis, what was, or first of all, what was your first purchase? And then, well, Jimmy and I met in high school. Oh, and okay. To answer that part of the question, we met the first week of freshman year. And <laughs> yes, we certainly did go record shopping a lot together. <laughs> but that was a little bit later, not grammar school. You know, I can't remember the first record I purchased with my own money, but I was always bugging my parents to buy me records. I can say uh, that the two singles, well, there was five singles that really got me started in late 62. Wiggle Wobble by Les Cooper and the Soul Rockers. Return to Sender by Elvis Presley. Don't Hang Up by the Orlons. Big Girls Don't Cry by the Four Seasons. And... Bobby's Girl by Marcy Blaine. I got them all for Christmas of 62. And um, those are the first 45s that I owned, rock and roll 45s. But I think the spark really came from watching American Bandstand years before that. Every afternoon, American Bandstand came on. And you know, I think I started watching it when I was two, maybe three. Hmm. And uh, you know, then along came the twist and all that. And it really fired my imagination and... And I wanted to start playing drums. I got my first toy drum when I was uh, about two and a half. <laughs> Courtesy um, of your parents? Yeah, it was a Christmas gift. And I started teaching myself to play. To what end at that point, I don't know. But I, <laughs> I, I did have the, the bug. But back to your question, the, I, I don't remember the, the first record I actually bought. But those are the ones I wanted. Yeah. And uh, I didn't really have a job until many years later. But I got yeah. a lot of 45s courtesy my parents and gifts and 
throughout the sixties, but those are the ones that really started it for me. Those songs don't aren't necessarily drumming songs. Was there a, was there a song in particular that was like sparked your interest besides Sparks by the Who? Or that, uh, <laughs> was there a song like this is I want to drum along to this song? Well, actually, like, those got... records that those records that I mentioned. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, they are oh, okay. pretty heavy rhythmic songs. Like I don't know if you know Wiggle Wobble by Les Cooper. It was a big hit. As a sax solo, but Bernard Purdy is on drums on that record. So the rhythm track of that cut really, really uh, spoke to me. cite the Four Seasons uh, records and as being among the earliest records that inspired me to want to play drums. So the, the, the rhythm feel on those, those sides were very pronounced and very strong and very cool. And so Big Girls Don't Cry was amongst those records. So it was more the rhythm singles rather than solos or flashy drumming. It was the grooves of the records and the, the cool fills that the drummers were doing on those that attracted me and inspired me. Mm. Do you know who the drummer was? Because usually those were uncredited back back then. I didn't know when I was a kid, but years later I learned that I think Big Girls Don't Cry was Panama Francis, but the guy who played on most of the uh, Four Seasons records was a guy called Buddy Saltzman. He was a, a New York session drummer who played on a lot of great records. So yeah, he was the guy. He's kind of unsung, but mm. he played on many, many hits that came out of New York in the late 50s, 60s, and 70s, early 70s. So, okay, so you've been playing drums for since two and a half, and then you meet Jim. Jim, when did you strap on a, a guitar? Did you even know how to play guitar when you met Dennis? Barely. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I could play, yeah, no, I could play chords. I Well, I got to say, I, I started off with accordion first, and, and when I was seven years old, 1964, and coincidentally, Mike, our bass player, had the same accordion teacher at the same time. He, uh, I guess he was the only accordion teacher in town. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't really know Mike then, uh, although I did have my communion with him when we were seven years old. Oh, nice. We went to the same church, but I wasn't friends with him until high school because uh, he was in a different school district. Even though he lived right around the corner from me, it was a dividing line. Anyway, by 66, I, um, I wanted a guitar, but my dad wouldn't get it for me because he didn't like the picture of the Beatles on that Hey Jude album. <laughs> <laughs> so I started playing the violin. So I used to read music when I was a kid, but then by 69, I finally got a guitar and I took some lessons from a teacher, but he was teaching me how to play like Mary Had a Little Lamb and stuff like that. And I, I just wanted nothing to do with that. So I got a chord book, and then I, I looked at the dots on it and figured out how to make the chords. So I kind of taught myself. And then when I met Dennis, you know, we started playing together, and, and I, it just clicked. And I always say this, he, he made me a better player because I had to keep up with him. He was mm. uh, much more advanced than I was. So I had to, you know, force myself to play better. A big thing for me was the Rolling Stones' Get Your Yaya's album, the live album, because... I figured out how to play O'Carroll the way the Stones played it, and then I realized, oh, my God, that's Chuck Berry I learned later on. And then I started <laughs> learning the Chuck Berry riffs, and that's how I started playing lead guitar, just from scratch. And then I'd find the notes that sound good. I didn't know till years later what a pentatonic scale was. I, I never knew any scales or anything. I just learned by, by ear. Yeah. Did you ever get to play with Chuck Berry? Because usually he just hired local musicians and like everyone knows a Chuck Berry song. And, you know, Springsteen did oh, that, I think. Yeah, we were supposed to back him up for a show. And we did play on the same bill. And he was very nice, nice to me. He, uh, he signed my picture sleeve for You Never Can Tell, the song that they used in Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we were supposed to back him up, but then he, he brought a band in for that. But we did play on the same day and I got to meet him and uh, got to watch him uh drive in he he famously rents a car at the airport and drives to the gig and uh gets paid in cash in a briefcase 
and then gets back in his car after he's done and leaves. So I'm watching this from backstage, him with his captain's hat on, making a K-turn in the parking lot. It was just so cool. Like, this is something you don't see every day, you know? So it was cool. But we didn't get to actually play with him, but we were on the same bill. Still a thrill, I'm sure, of course. You know. It was a huge thrill. Yeah. yeah. Okay, wait, I just have to go back to something you said really quick. You said you didn't have a record player at home growing up. Right. So no musical influence from your parents or anything like that? My dad played accordion. Okay. <laughs> well, my parents are Hungarian. They're immigrants from Hungary. And as a matter of fact, I was born in Austria because um, oh. there was a revolution in, in Hungary in 56. The, the mm-hmm. Russians came in with tanks like... Does that sound familiar? So 1956, <laughs> the Russians came into Hungary and they uh, turned it into a communist country. So my dad and mom were teenagers. They left. They went to Austria. They got married. Nine months later, they had me. And then a year later, we came to America. So I was a year old when we got here. So my parents worked in factories when I was growing up. And you know they couldn't get me a record player. But, uh, yeah, so it took a long time. Otherwise, I would have been with Dennis and uh, getting uh, records at, when I was four because yeah. I, I loved music. I mean, I had neighbors that had record players, and I remember hearing Elvis Presley records and stuff like that. I did love music. Yeah. And I did have a little transistor radio, one of those little things. Yep. I just loved the beat, and uh, just music made me happy, and it still does. Hey, Jimmy, Jimmy, didn't you um, hear records in jukeboxes in your dad's taverns? Oh, well, that was later. That was later. My dad was able to be a partner with somebody in a tavern business back in 1969. And then I'd get all the leftover 45s from that that, because every two weeks they would put the latest top five records in there. So I ended up getting some of those records for free. That's a score. (laughs) <laughs> for for a kid, well, for a youngster. Well, they weren't all records that I liked, but yeah, you know. but still, they it's were music. the hits. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure a few so, of those are in your jukebox right now, right? Not those. I have <laughs> uh, my choice in there. <laughs> Talking with Jim and Dennis of the Smithereens, but we are going to take a break right now and return shortly. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guests, Jim Babchek and Dennis Dyken of the Smithereens. The Smithereens are actually in the Jersey Hall of Fame now, right? Is that is that correct? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. What was that like? How did uh, that that ceremony or what was that experience as, as Jerseyites? As, as New Jerseyans? Yeah. Is it New Jerseyites or Jerseyans? What do you call yourselves? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what he calls. It was an honor. Who else got honored the year that we got inducted? Uh, um, uh, Jason Alexander from Seinfeld. Right. And um, Southside Johnny. Oh, nice. Did he? That same year? Were you close to Asbury Park? Was that a thing that you went to or did you play there? Oh, yeah. I remember going there as a kid. Yeah. With my with my cousins and folks yeah just uh, for the beach and for the amusements there and i always liked it and we did we we would go to the stone pony and there the fast lane mm-hmm. was another club and uh and we started playing at the stone pony in 1980 right. way before we had a record deal we were fortunate that we had some friends in a group called lord gunner uh, lance larson was the the leader he now has the wonder bar in asbury park I guess he owns or runs that place. He was kind enough to let us open one, one night every week. We were just Thursday nights. Thursday night. We were just. Do you remember how much we got paid then? It was twenty five dollars. <laughs> we got paid total, not per person. <laughs> not per person. My bar tab was bigger than the, what the entire band got. Yeah. Sorry, but Dan. It, I, I it, broke no, it's just it was every week for a couple months, and we were only. A few months old at that time and to score a gig at the stone pony a huge deal without that connection would probably have taken us a number of years to to get ourselves so we were very fortunate yeah, uh, yeah. we definitely went to asbury park and 
as we say in New Jersey, down the shore. I don't know if that's a phrase that's used anywhere else in the in the country. But I don't think so. Well, we go down. Yeah, I mean, we're going down the shore. We go down Mexico uh, Way as uh, Los Angelinos. There's always yeah that expression. Never heard that either. Down Mexico Way. Down, yeah, yeah, that's from a song. I've yeah, I think you're right. I yeah. think it is in the song. South of the border, down Mexico way. But down the shore means going to the beach or just going down to the boardwalk. Yeah, I guess that is a very Jersey thing. Yeah, Asbury Park was, was definitely on our radar. How did this kid named Pat land into your life? How did you find him? He was, he was not in your circle originally, right? Is that is that correct? In yeah, the three of us, Jimmy, Mike, and myself, just for the record, I went to grammar school with Mike, so I know him since third grade. He great. He, yeah. So we grew up together, and uh, he was playing accordion as a kid, too. But, <laughs> the instrument uh, of uh, New Jersey? Was yeah, I wish I, had, I wish I had studied it, really. Did back. you ever throw in the accordion on the Smithereens track? We had concertina on Maria Elena, but that's not quite an accordion. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's a thought. Once Jimmy and I started, and Mike was hanging out with us a lot, once he saw that Jimmy and I were pretty serious about going the distance together as musicians, he thought, well, I want to hang out with these guys a lot. Maybe I should learn bass, which he taught himself, and he got really proficient very quickly on bass. I mean, Mike is a world-class bassist. So the three of us were hustling and bustling and scuffling and playing uh, in Jimmy's garage and then playing the occasional party. We had uh, a lead singer that sang with us for like one or two occasions. One time was a party at Mike's apartment in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. The other time was at Carteret Park. Very nice park in Carteret, by the way, for a blue collar town. But that didn't really click. So we really wanted to find a lead singer. There's a really good entertainment paper in New Jersey called The Aquarian. Been around for a long time. And back before the internet, you would have to scour the uh, musicians' classifieds to find other players. And it was like pages and pages of musicians uh, offering their services and seeking other musicians. And I found myself in a number of pretty cool band situations from checking those ads. We used to check the Village Voice ads as well. But lo and behold, in 78, we actually put our own ad out looking for a lead singer. And at the, right around the same time, Pat, who lived in Scotch Plains, Car, by the way, Carteret, where the three of us grew up, is on the coast of New Jersey. And it's about 25 miles south of, uh, of New York City. Uh, Pat came from Scotch Plains, a little more inland, about 25 minutes, half hour from Carteret. So he had an ad. He was in a cover band at the time. And they were looking for a drummer. And I said, let me call, because the ad was enticing. It wasn't your typical uh, Jersey cover band. Back in those days, New Jersey had a real cover band scene. I mean, good cover bands could work seven nights a week and pull in good dough. But they were doing the hits of the day, or you would have a Stones cover band. There was one called Sticky Fingers. There was uh, a glam band called T-Roth and Another Pretty Face. They did originals, too. Uh, but they would do glam covers. There's tons and tons of nightclubs where these bands could play, including down the shore. So Pat's ad said the cover band seeking drummer, but they were doing Buddy Holly, Elvis Costello, The Jam, The Beatles, Devo. I said, wow, this is different. And even though it would mean that I would be joining this band, I wasn't leaving Mike and Jimmy behind. I just thought, well, look, we're kind of dormant right now. Let me, this might be interesting. Let me see what happens. So I called the number and I spoke with Pat and this was 1978. They had tried out a slew of drummers and they weren't happy with any of them. So I came down to the audition and Pat wasn't even there because he was just tired of the whole process. So I met with the other two fellas and played that night. And then um, they called Pat and they said, you might want to come back and check this guy out. We'll call him back. So I did. I went down a second time and I joined this, this cover band with Pat and these other two fellas. It didn't last very long, but um, that's how we forged a friendship and eventually a musical partnership with Pat. That band fizzled out. Pat started writing originals and he called me to play on his demos. He didn't really have a lead guitarist or a bassist. He was doing all that himself and the songs were quite good. 
So I said, you know, I know a couple dudes who would probably be right for this music. So Jimmy came in and Mike came in and voila. Jim, did you did you recognize the talent of Pat immediately or did you guys click it instantly or was it, did it take like a, a few sessions before it was like, oh, yeah, we got something here? No, I think we clicked right away because we, we shared the same roots musically mm-hmm. and, and uh, sensibilities. It's funny because now it wouldn't be as hard, I think, to find somebody as connected to what we wanted to do as it was back then. So when you found somebody that was into, you know, of course, the Beatles, but also the Who and even things like Telstar by the Tornadoes and sci-fi and, and, and a lot of other cultural touchstones, it was, it was a very rare and a very cool thing. You usually held on for dear life to, to maintain those relationships because, as I said, it was difficult. So we did click and we just went for it right away. Can we talk about the lost album? From what I read, this was recorded by you guys in between record deals. Is that the reason it was never released? Because it seems like it should have been. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, We cut that stuff. Then we got a deal with RCA. And then uh, actually some of the songs we did during the sessions for what we're calling the lost album, we recorded a whole other album's worth of material much of which did surface re-recorded for a date with the smithereens so it was a pretty fertile period mm. for us so mm. once we got with rca and um got busy with that we just we didn't forget about the music on the lost album but it just got it got pushed to the side and um you know now's the time to dig into the vaults and seize light of day yeah because then you, you keep moving forward and writing new songs and and then then we got dropped by RCA, so you know those, those songs were just left behind because then we started working on new songs for the next label we were on. There's stuff like that that just uh, it wasn't the right time for it to come out or or whatever, for whatever reason it, it just didn't work out. It's easier now too yeah. because now you could have your own label. I mean back then it was a different system, you know. You had, you had to be on a major label at the time. Now it's different. There's so many other outlets. It just seems like it should have come out then. It seemed like it would have been a perfect follow-up. I'm glad you feel that way. Yeah. Thanks. 93 is when this, when you were recording this. So this is like the grunge era, you know, Nirvana and Pearl yeah. Jam. Uh, they're all hitting. And then, you know, you got your smithereens. And then so I, I don't know if maybe the label heard that and was trying to figure it out. Is this musically relevant at, at the time, or, or I don't know what? Or did you just put it away? Did yeah, you just, or put just, it in just the tuck it away, and then that was that. Yeah, pretty um, much. I don't think it really fit with the times. What about you? What do you think, Ben? I mean, in general, if if you're talking about you know radio and and all that, all the attention was on the grunge scene, and we didn't really fit into that any you know anymore. Although the gin blossoms were hitting at that time, so I could see why uh, Robin would be interested in with things with you now. I don't know. I mean, yeah. we always did what we did and, and never gave too much consideration to what was on the radio. So, yeah, maybe it wasn't the right time for that to come out at that period. I, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Okay. I wrote, listening back so, to this to these songs, is, is there one or two songs that stick out like, oh, my God, this was this is gold. Something that surprised you. What, what surprised you from this album? Well, Jimmy and I were saying Stop Bringing Me Down was one that uh, we never played it out and kind of sticks out it's it's a little different for us i suppose and it's got a good beat can dance to it <laughs> hey man what's your name it seems like i've seen you now but what is your claim anyway just go away stop Stand fan, yeah. I really, I really did like him. I still watch it on YouTube a lot. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So when Smithereens go back on tour, I, I guess you're on a break for right now, but you're going to be. Uh, you've got a few other shows. When when this album comes out, will you be playing uh, uh, some of these songs? 
Yeah, for sure. I'll have to relearn them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Do you find that a yeah. lot? Like, like even with the big hits, like, oh, we got to, uh, I got to refresh. Not no, me. I think those are those are pretty much in our DNA. I would are say. they? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't now. like to rehearse. I I, I hate <laughs> rehearse. And, and plus, uh, you know, working on new songs for uh, you know an album with with Robin and Marshall and the three of us. So we keep moving. We're going to keep moving. And uh, oh, that's wonderful. But in, in the interim, you know, we're going to put out stuff from the vaults. But we we are going to be putting out new music um, yeah. as soon as. Okay, so I know I'm sure the dynamic, you know, is different with Marshall and with the different singers that you've been playing with. Is it fun? Do you have fun with it? I'm I'm assuming the answer is yes, but <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there's there's no other reason to do it. It's it's my passion. It's our passion, and uh, it's my therapy. You know, <laughs> yeah. Because not only did we lose Pat, I, I lost my wife. Uh, it's like six years ago now to uh, pancreatic cancer. You know, one of the things I have to do is keep moving. You know, I want to stay healthy for my kids. And uh, playing music in front of people is one of my favorite things in the world to do. And especially with Dennis, who <laughs> I've been friends with for over 50 years. Uh, when, when I'm on stage, oh I still feel like I'm, I'm a teenager. So um, I might not look it, but I certainly feel like it. Pretty close. Yeah, I want to stay young, so uh, I'll be doing this as long as I can. Yeah, I feel the same way. I really do. And um, that's what keeps it fresh for us, I guess you would say, because we really do play like we're teenagers. It, <laughs> it's not forced. We just, that's the way we play. And, and that's the way we play off of each other. I always said that the essence of the smithereens, if I hit a flam on my snare, just one beat, and if Jimmy hits a chord in, in his unique voicing of, of how he plays a chord, that's the essence of the smithereens right there. It's just the type of thing that um, you can't plan or manufacture. It's just the product of playing together, the essence, you know, of two musical souls coming together and just making it happen naturally, organically, you know? It's definitely the core yeah. of where it's where it started. Again, going back to playing with other singers now, what drew you to these artists? I mean, had you played with them before? Had you played on a bill with them? Like, what was it that made you think, yeah, this will work with the Smithereens? Well, they're they're both different. Marshall has been a friend of ours since since 1981. I think is the first time we met him. We opened up for him when he was new. And then he ended up playing keyboards. Uh, Pat w was friendly with them, so he came into the studio and played keyboards on uh, a demo of um, Strangers When We Meet. And then when we got signed to a label, he came in and produced his part on our album. So he's on the Especially For You album playing keyboards on that. but he was credited as Jerome Jerome. He found out that Pat wasn't going to pay him. He didn't want to use his real name, but the, but the real reason was he was on Warner Brothers and he, he couldn't use his real name or, or it should have said courtesy of or whatever. And then Robin, he worked in a record store in Arizona, in Tempe, called Zia Records, and he was a fan from the first album. And there were no Jim Blossoms yet him and his friends that ended up in the Jim Blossoms used to come to our shows there all the time. So in 88, 1988, when we had our Green Thoughts album tour, we stopped in there to sign autographs. We had like an autograph thing at that particular record store and he was there. There's pictures of us with a young Robin before he was in the Jim Blossoms. He told me he set up all the displays for the album at, at the store. He was, he was a huge fan. So after Pat passed away, we had, we did a memorial show where the proceeds went to a scholarship fund for musicians 
in here in Red Bank, New Jersey. What we did was we gathered or asked everybody we knew to sing a song or two. So there was B.B. Buell. I don't know if you know who she is. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's Liv Tyler's mom. Mm -hmm. So she recorded a version of Top of the Pops many years ago, so I thought she'd be perfect. I gave her a call. Mm -hmm. And then um, friends of ours, Richard Barone from the Bongos, Peter Zaremba from the Flesh Tones, Marshall Crenshaw, of course, and a whole slew of people. Even Dave Davies came to that, that show. And then my girlfriend was friends with Robin's wife, Jenna. She said, oh, he, he would love to do this. So I met him for the first time. Well, reintroduced me, because that, that's when he told me that we met back in 1988. <laughs> but he just killed it. And after the show, both Marshall and Robin, after this benefit, said, hey, if, if you guys want to do any future shows, I'm available. So that's in a nutshell how it happened. And, and then we thought, well, let's see how this works out. And out of all the artists that uh, guested with us that night, Marshall and Robin, it just fit. Though. And both totally different. Right. So. Interesting. Have you ever seen the Gin Blossoms? Did you ever go see a show of theirs? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. going uh, next Saturday. Yeah. I'm going to go see them. And uh, they're playing in Carteret, of all places, in the park. <laughs> nice. Carteret oh, park. I hear that's a nice park. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I've heard. For a blue collar town, that's I've a really that. great park. Yeah. You know, they have a monument, uh, a, a war memorial monument at Carteret Park. I mean, you were, when we were kids, if somebody challenged you to a fight, monument, 430. <laughs> that, would, that would be the place to meet. And then you, to, you, then you guys that. snap along and they're like, okay, it's on. Here we go. Ta-dam. Right? That's how you guys fought back then. Right? Yeah, that's how we roll. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm thinking back to when we were when we were kids going to the park, which we did often. You know, I always felt I would eventually be a musician, but I didn't think that we'd be able to come to Carteret Park and do a big show there, <laughs> which we did back in 2010, I think it was our 30th anniversary. Yeah, yeah. for our 30th. Wow, <laughs> I mean, it's just nuts. <laughs> It is. Think about that. Yeah, that must be bonkers. Also, because you guys are such Beatles fans, I know you initially signed to Enigma, but that went into Capitol, and all of a sudden you're on the same label as the Beatles. I'm sure you went in that building, and you know, like, what were those feelings? You know, as you as you walk through those iconic uh, studios. Well, yeah, we did record our second album, Green Thoughts, at the Capitol Tower, Studio B, December of '87. That was a big deal for us. That was a huge deal. Yeah, Capitol, of course. Beatles, Beach Boys, Nat Cole, Sinatra, Stan Kenton, just so many groups. What was real special for us is that we camped out in that studio for, I guess, about 10 days. And we did roam the building at night. We had an assistant engineer (laughs) who was a really cool guy, and he had keys to every room in the building. We were on our respective breaks. He would take us wherever we wanted to. You know, the president's his office, drinking beer in his office at midnight. He took us into the echo chamber under the parking lot. That was, for me, is I man, that was a huge thrill. That building looms so large throughout our mm-hmm. our childhood and, and throughout musical history and entertainment history. And to be able to really dig in and spend time there and check it out at length. Do you remember uh, going on the roof? We went we went up to the roof rooftop. Yeah, I do. Yeah, pictures of that. Yeah. There were no cameras back then following you around the building. There might have been. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I wonder about that. That's a good question, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, nobody busted us if, if there were. Hmm. Well, you are the smithereens. This is true. Well. <laughs> I know that you guys play Saturday Night Live. What is that like behind the scenes for a band playing on that show? Hurry up and wait like any TV show. You know? right. yeah. A, yeah, it was great, but it was just another day. We were, I think... We were on tour for the uh, Smithereens 11 album, so we rehearsed on Thursday and then uh, did the show live. Ladies and gentlemen, the Smithereens. Take anything at all, and she loved it. 
California uh, for this last trip. I was looking for the end of the line to get on the plane for group number one. And I asked this guy, I said, is this the end of the line? And it turned out to be John Lovitz (laughs) on the plane with us. And I said, hey, John, how you doing? I said, "Uh, you know, you might not remember, but we were on SNL with you back in 1991. And he's like, oh, that was a long time ago. Who was who was the host again? And I said, I said it was Corbin Burns, and he says, oh, yeah, yeah. That was just pure coincidence that we're talking about that now. Did you jump in the van and go across the uh, the United States? <laughs> the first tour, yeah, that yeah. was exactly what happened. But, yeah, when the first album came out, it was a van with a trailer, and uh, we did a little tour. The first leg of that tour was opening for the Ramones, and, um, oh, nice. yeah, we, we just hit the road running. The great thing, Blood and Roses was doing very well on uh, rock radio and on uh, MTV. And then in short order, Behind the Wall of Sleep took off. So we had some legs. And that tour lasted 15, 16 months. Oh, we were actually, I mean, we came home here and there for some breaks, but we went to Europe several times, crisscrossed the country several times. It was, yeah, we did not have a tour bus on, on that first tour at all. So I remember at a, gas, at a gas station, somebody recognized us, and they said, "And they said, you're traveling in that? <laughs> they, they thought we'd be on a tour bus or something." And it was just a white van with a yeah. with a U-Haul behind it. Yeah. Rock and you roll. Tell them so you could be anonymous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did you learn from the Ramones? These guys love to hit the road and, and play. And they had pizza on their rider, and I'm like, "What's a rider?" Oh. Uh, like after the show, we can get pizza, really, <laughs> and beer. <laughs> Did no, you write that uh, in afterwards? <laughs> I think so. No, they they were great. Joey really liked us a lot. After the shows, he would say, um, "You guys are good, maybe a little too good. You guys are off the tour." <laughs> oh, is that? <laughs> they, he would joke joke to us about that. So, <laughs> Dennis, you have any uh, any specific things? What did we learn from them? Well, you know, I guess what we learned is that even once you cross to a, over to a certain point in your career, you still really got to get the job done. And they were a hard-working traveling band, you know? Spending a little time with them and watching them and, and, and interacting with them, it just cemented what was already ingrained in us. As I said before, we come from a blue-collar town, and we really did have that work ethic and, and it took us six close to six years to get a record deal so i, I think it just reinforced our uh, determination and uh made us realize that okay they they've been around a while we probably can too i think it just boosted our confidence a bit mm-hmm. the fact that they would accept us and take us under their wing meant a lot to us did you venture to the Bowery to, to CBGB's at all back in 78, 78. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The great story, I, I always love telling this story. Jimmy and I went to see Wings Over America at the Garden. <laughs> yeah. 19, 1976, and we were with some friends. At the time, I'd been hearing a lot about CBGB's, and I was very curious of, to check it out, but just never had the opportunity to go. So our friend said, hey, after the show, we're going to go to this club CBGB. I said, wow, great. So Jimmy and I, we joined them on the subway and went down to the Bowery from Madison Square Garden where we just witnessed this, you know, wonderful rock and roll extravaganza, this big glitzy production, Paul McCartney and Wings Over America. I mean, wow, what a great thrill it was for us. And so we go downtown to the Bowery, which at the time was kind of funky. You know, New York was in the 70s was... (laughs) Dangerous place. And we're talking, you know, 11 o'clock, maybe midnight. And we walk into this dank, dark club. And there on the stage is television. Very stark contrast to what we had just witnessed at uh, this hockey arena. And they were riveting. It was a great night of music and enlightenment, I would say. I I think, Jimmy, you had an observation about seeing them too, right? Yeah, because uh, if we were serious about starting a band, it almost seemed like it was 
not achievable when you see the who and Paul McCartney in Madison Square Garden. It's like, wow, how, how do I get there? But then when we, I was mesmerized by television and then later on Blondie and Ramones. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe we can do this because we don't have to, we could start out somewhere like this and it's achievable. So it, it made it more realistic. By the way, the drinking age was 18 back then. So, um, you know, we were able to go to these places uh, at that age. Because I think we were only 18 at the time. Yeah. yeah, it was it was an exciting time because it wasn't what you were hearing on the radio either. Then then they started calling them punk bands and they gave them labels and stuff. But to me, it was just it was just music. It was rock to me. Like like Billy Joel said, I believe, right? He, he said that. Yeah. What did he say? Oh, he said it's still rock and roll to me. <laughs> Did you ever play like an iconic play, like the Radio City? Did you? Oh, yeah. Did you pause for a second to just kind of soak it in? What was what was that moment? Absolutely, oh, yeah. uh, Radio City with Lou Reed and the Pretenders on different occasions. Two nights with Lou Reed and three nights with the Pretenders at, at Radio City. It was just, uh, you know, wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, Dennis, what, do you remember any uh, specifics about that? It was awesome. It really was. Talk about history, number one. You were talking about venues before with some tradition and history. Radio City, just a beautiful deco palace. It really is awe-inspiring. And to, uh, I had been there before to see films and, and things. But uh, We saw the Beach Boys there, remember? Yes, that's right. We did in 78 or 79. Mm. Getting to play there was one of the big thrills, I think, of our career. Uh, again, the lost album. Do you think Pat wanted this out? If he was around, sure. He probably forgot about it, too. <laughs> <laughs> and for your son, is it going to be available on vinyl? <laughs> I want it to be on vinyl. We just couldn't work it out this time because there, there was a long, there was a backlog. Mm -hmm. But we do have plans, and it's already in the works. We have a Christmas album that came out over 10 years ago. And it's been out of print, so we got the rights back to that, and we're putting that out on vinyl and CD. And it's a it's a great Christmas record. I don't know if you heard it, but Christmas with the Smithereens, and I, I really like it. I wouldn't say that, you know, I I would say, oh, that album's crap, but it's 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 good. So eventually, we'll be putting out a lot of stuff on vinyl, like our 2011 album. Hopefully, we can get that out in the next spring on vinyl and CD because that's also out of print. Those records were all licensed to um, a company, and uh, we're getting the rights back to all that stuff. And the first album, especially for you, where uh, now that you know uh, you mention it, we got the rights back after 35 years. So we're going to do a deluxe edition of the first album with uh, everything, just a deluxe version with a booklet and everything. One of my favorite quotes, I think, when I was looking doing some research, is you you guys had played this this music so much. It's the debut album that felt like a greatest hits album for you, but it's, mm -hmm. but it's still, I mean, it's, uh, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that was my first exposure to the smithereens and it's still like those songs are embedded in my brain and not as much as yours, I'm sure, but still like, the, we feel like there are history. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's wonderful. That's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear. You nice know, it took hear. us, it took us six years to get to that point, you know? And then what's amazing even more is the second album, which is really great, mm -hmm. Green Thoughts. We only had, we had very little time to put that together. So we passed the, the sophomore slump, I right. think, with that. Right, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the old story. You have uh, 25 years to put yeah. out the debut and six months to put out the second one. So, Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad, yeah, it's, it's nice to hear that uh, the Smithereen story is continuing and going on and Best of luck to you. Well, like I always say, we don't know how to do anything else. So. <laughs> well, you're doing it very well. Whatever you picked, a great specialty. Uh, anything else you'd like to? You need to, to no, get off your chest. We're, we're happy that the lost album is finally out. It's been a long time. We've been wanting to issue it for a while. We're glad that so far the reaction has been really positive, and this ties in with it. It might sound corny, but it's really true, and it might sound cliche, but. We really do appreciate our fans and the fact that after all these years, and we, we mean the both of you in this too, because uh, we have a very loyal fan base that continue to buy our records and come out to see <laughs> us all these years. And, and we couldn't, there's, there would be no reason for us to be doing this if it weren't for the support and love of our fans. And we hear from 
a lot of people that are so sincere about how our music has meaning for them and has gotten through gotten them through rough times and or I proposed to my wife with using one of your songs or one of your songs was our wedding song all that stuff we don't take it lightly and we're grateful so I just want to make that known we we are because we grew up as fans too and we still are fans we know what it's like the music that we always loved how it has a special place in our lives and in our hearts so for us to be able to reach people with our music and just by us expressing ourselves and touching people's hearts it's a it's a huge thing so we, we don't take it lightly and we really do appreciate it and and i do hear from a lot of fans at the show saying that they're so happy that we're continuing because they want to hear the songs played by the people that played on them mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. well if i can say as a as a fan and as a professional your sincerity comes through in your music and talking to you and seeing you know we watched interviews with you and read interviews so your sincerity is recognized as genuine thank you well, thank you thank you All right, well, you know so what on. let me give a plug for my weekly streaming radio show denny's den it's on WFMU.org. So I do that every Wednesday, and it's on the archives 24-7. It's a two-hour show, and I play records that I like and I hope my listeners like. All right. Thanks for having us. We yeah. really appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Well, go down Go down to the shore, would you? And, uh, no, no. no you down know, the shore. Down, oh. It's not down to the shore. It's down, down the shore. Go down Get the, it right. All right. You're right. You're right. My apologies. <laughs> yeah, you, you guys go to the desert. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Or to the coast. With a horse with no name. Thank you. Thank you. Hope to hope to meet you in person next time we're in in California. Definitely. We will for sure. Yes, we'll make sure. All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks again. Yeah, take care. Cheers. Bye. All right, so that was kind of fun. I felt like we stepped into the 1960s for a bit and just got like a little history lesson as to what it was like to be a teenager in New Jersey. Thank you to Wendy Brinford-Jones for introducing us to the boys in the band. They were wonderful, and so was Wendy. So thank you to Wendy. Thank you to Holly. Thank you to Pantheon Podcast. We are a proud, proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family. And thank you, Dave. Wonderful. As always, until next Friday, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. <laughs>